there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 36, The Wilderness Years. With Hitler released from his brief imprisonment on December 20th, 1924, he re-emerged into a Germany that was beginning to recover from the depths of the despair that had overtaken the nation the year previous. And with that despair dissipated, for the moment, he would have to reckon with a less chaotic environment to take advantage of. While Hitler was still in prison in the Landsberg Fortress, there was little for him to do but read the news, observe events, and dictate Mein Kampf. And politics weren't waiting around for someone who had always been a minor figure, and who was now considered a has-been. In the May 1924 elections, the Volkish groups hadn't done terribly. As a whole, they nabbed 6.5% of the national vote, and did even stronger in local elections like in Bavaria and Mecklenburg. For ultra-right cranks, who had been discredited after the Beer Hall push, it could have been a lot worse. Ludendorff actually visited Hitler a couple of times in prison, trying to get his official support for a north-south alliance between the various groups. Hitler didn't oppose it per se, uh, but didn't back it fully, as he didn't have a clear place in its leadership, which worried him. Events quickly got out of control for him, though, as the north-south factions agreed to cooperate without his input. Ludendorff, on June 11th, openly said Hitler was on board with an eventual merger between all the factions, something that wasn't true, but Hitler couldn't deny it, lest he look both obstructive and powerless. Another problem he faced was the Nazi Party's loss of control over the SA. The brown shirts had also reorganized under different names, but now decided they were no longer under Alfred Rosenberg's authority. They still claimed a kind of spiritual loyalty to Hitler personally, but not to the party itself, which was going to be something Hitler would eventually have to deal with down the road, as that little problem cropped up over and over again over the years. On a related note, Rom was also out of prison in April 1924, and immediately set about organizing paramilitary groups yet again, because he really only knew how to do the one thing in his life. Except this time, he wanted every group across the entire nation under his leadership, including the SA. Hitler wasn't happy, but again, he was in prison, and Rom simply turned to Ludendorff as his new figurehead leader. There was a small issue with all these maneuverings, though. While Ludendorff and the other Volkish leaders were more than happy to marginalize Hitler, the rank and file really weren't. Even among the Northerners, he was the one with actual street cred. He had been the one with the guts to launch an uprising, and then, when put on trial, was wholly unrepentant. Keep in mind, Ludendorff equivocated on his involvement very publicly. The members wanted Hitler to lead them, and Hitler would want to lead them as a dictator, something that the other leaders didn't really look forward to. It didn't help that none of them were particularly strong personalities either, and didn't have big personal followings. Ludendorff was the most high-profile public figure they had access to, and he was a terrible politician. Hitler refused to commit to any deal while in prison, which meant that the Volkish leaders couldn't devise a coherent way forward that all of them could agree on. When elections were called in December 1924, the movement were at each other's throats. This was reflected in the results when the Volkish bloc was reduced to a 3% share of the vote. For Hitler, though, this was great. He was fresh out of prison, just as his rivals had immolated themselves totally. Now going into 1925, he could start from scratch and build the far right back up himself. It wasn't going to be easy, though, and the next several years could probably be counted as the lowest ebb of Hitler's political fortunes 
until the end of the World War, of course. His party was outlawed, and he was personally banned from speaking in a public forum until 1927. And, well, the entire Volkish movement had just collapsed acrimoniously. Most importantly, there wasn't the same level of public anger as before, so there wasn't a rabble available to rouse. His first move was to try and re-legalize the party. He managed to secure a meeting with the sitting Bavarian minister-president, which is really kind of messed up when you realize that he's not even three weeks out of prison and already having sit-downs with the occupants of high office. He told the minister-president that he would never again try to perform a push, and that he would respect the state going forward, which, while the spirit of what he was saying was false, he did mean the letter of it, as he no longer considered a revolution as a viable option. The minister-president accepted this at face value, and on February 16th, the NSDAP was a lawful party again. He also spent January bringing the various factions in the party to heel, which, given their fractured state, was not difficult. When he announced the reformation of the Nazi party, he used the opportunity to have the various bosses swear new loyalty to himself. This they did on a February party meeting at the same beer hall they had launched the push. The Nazi party was back in business. There was still a rift with northern Volkish groups, but it was apparent to everyone that Hitler was re-emerging as the clear leader, with the Nazis as the centerpiece of the greater movement. There was one more wrinkle, which was Ludendorff. Hitler wanted to do away with the old general, but couldn't just chuck him out publicly. An opportunity arose, though, when the president of Germany, Ebert, died immediately after the refounding of the Nazis. Suddenly, there was a presidential election on, and Hitler appealed to Ludendorff to run for office. Ludendorff, still not understanding just how bad a politician he was, agreed. On the March 29th vote, the general was creamed, garnering 1.1% of the vote. His old boss, Paul von Hindenburg, wound up getting the top spot. This wrecked Ludendorff's viability as a leader, as nobody liked supporting a clear loser. He would never again contest Hitler for leadership, and would rage against Hindenburg for swooping in on the job he felt belonged to him. His public tirades did him no favors, and he became estranged from all his former partners and sought a kind of comfort in German paganism and occultism. He would eventually die in 1937, having lived long enough to watch Hitler seize absolute power. Ludendorff's sudden exit from the far-right stage also strengthened Hitler yet again, as any Volkish group trying to find an alternative to him had just lost their most viable candidate. Now, Hitler was the only one left to lead. There was also Rom, but he was no political leader and was neutralized not long after Ludendorff. In April 1925, Hitler demanded that Rome turn over control of his paramilitary organization over to him. Seeing that he didn't have anybody left to protect him, Rome acquiesced at the end of the month and turned over control of his network to Hitler. Rome himself entered a temporary retirement, and in 1928, he took a job advising the Bolivian army. But he'll be back in season two, don't worry. While secure among the ultra-right in Bavaria, Hitler understood he needed to expand in the north and dispatched Gregor Strasser to the task. Strasser was definitely the most capable organizer Hitler had access to, and set about to his task with gusto. Soon, party branches were more than doubled, and while the core of the party remained in Bavaria, the northern states were no longer an afterthought to the Nazi party, 
The past inattention to the northern branches, though, would have long-term repercussions for Hitler. He barely was in contact with his people there, and unlike the South, they did not have a personal relationship with him. They knew him by reputation and doctrine only, which meant that when Strasser showed up and started expanding operations, it was him that was the leader that the local groups built their relationships with. And he was a leader that was not so easily cowed by Hitler as the others. Plus, Gregor and his brother Otto, who would be aiding his efforts, were not 100% aligned with all of Hitler's viewpoints. The Strassers still advocated a platform of applying the actual socialist part of National Socialism, which entailed dismantling the capitalist system for the benefit of the German workers. This went over very well in the more industrialized North, but it was a problem for Hitler, who had very much abandoned all dalliances with socialism by this time. Hitler had no intention to challenge the powerful business interests of Germany. Indeed, he was rather eager to collect their donations to fund the party. But Hitler's power at this time was limited a little by proximity, so the Strasser brothers enjoyed a good deal of autonomy. That may sound odd given Hitler's history of uh, controlling behavior, but even with all his moves to secure his personal power within the party and to merge what was left of the Volkish movement under the Nazi umbrella, he was still badly restricted in how he could operate as a public figure. While he had got the Nazi party unbanned, he still couldn't act as a public speaker without being arrested. Which, given his power over the masses depended on his speaking, that was a big problem. Moreover, he was still writing Mein Kampf, or at least still dictating to Hess. With his own activities restricted and the party having sworn its loyalty sufficiently to him, Hitler took the opportunity to take something of a step back. During a great deal of 1925, Hitler was more or less on vacation, often to Berchtesgaden, sometimes traveling with Hofstangel and his entourage in the countryside. This meant that the Munich side of the Nazis increasingly fell under the sway of one Hermann Esser, one of those who had been vying for party leadership during the underground days of 1924. Esser was not much of a thinker, and leaned more on the brutish street fighter side of the Nazi party. It didn't help that he was associated closely with Julius Stryker in his attempts to bring the party more under his control. Remember that Stryker was the guy who even the Nazis thought was a little crazy with the anti-Semitism. These two personalities were both not only incredibly hostile to anyone who got in their way, they were also terribly suspicious of the taint of socialism they saw creeping into the northern branches. Now, the northern section of the party by this point was not all 100% unified on Strasser's revisionist stance on the party's platform, but they did certainly hate Esser and Stryker, so they found themselves drifting closer to Strasser just to keep the Munich clique at bay. This fracture took off slightly in September 1925, when the northern factions all agreed on forming a quote-unquote working community within the greater NSDAP. Hitler was not initially perturbed by this, and signed off on the very loose grouping of party branches. He might have been reassured by what he read coming from the organization's own newspaper, edited by a young Joseph Goebbels. Just as a little introduction, Goebbels grew up in the Rhineland, more specifically in the area around Dusseldorf. He was a sickly child, and notably suffered from a club foot, which left him with a limp and impaired his mobility a great deal. It also led to him being made fun of his entire childhood. He was, of course, rejected from military service during the war, all of which left Goebbels with a burning inferiority complex. 
He was always the butt of jokes and was denied a chance to prove his courage. Goebbels, though, was a sharp mind and excelled at university, which, if you hadn't noticed, was not a common thing among the Nazis so far. He earned a PhD in literature and was a voracious reader. Unfortunately, Germany was not a great place to be just starting out as an intellectual in the years after the war. He found neither steady work nor artistic fulfillment, which only further inflamed the frustration in him. And like so many other isolated souls with more access to information than solid interpersonal relationships, he turned to fascism. He was a later convert to the Nazis, and settled on joining them only after he was impressed with Hitler's theatrics during his 1924 trial after the Pusch. He himself gravitated towards the Strasserite viewpoint of revolutionary action in the service of a nationalist agenda, and due to his high level of education, he rose to become the editor of the Northern Wings newspaper. In this post, he did not have a high level of authority, but gained influence in a sphere he would later master, propaganda and public opinion. He was probably also second only to Hitler in his ability to deliver a speech, which sounds weird given that he was around five feet tall and frail as all hell, but he could command a room. The Strasser brothers and Goebbels worked to drive their message ever harder with the working community group. Eventually, Gregor and Goebbels put together their own alternative platform, which they presented at a northern meeting on January 24, 1926. It was edgy for the Nazis. It called for nationalization of businesses, land confiscations, and a racially pure Germany at the center of an integrated European economy. Hitler's proxy of the meeting bluntly told them the platform would, would be opposed and that it was nothing but a quote-unquote Jewish swindle. Goebbels was able to shout the man down, but the damage was done. Hitler himself got the message and ordered another meeting on February 14th. He delivered a two-hour speech where he summed up the policies of the Strasser platform as merely Jewish exploitation. No Germans would be deprived of their property, even if they already had way more than anybody else. Goebbels felt momentarily crushed. He had expected a chance to reason with Hitler and bring him over to his view, but there was little to do. The crowd of northern leaders fell under the Hitler spell during the speech and conceded immediately. In a single meeting, Hitler had again forced the party back into obedience by force of personality alone. This also signaled a reorganization of the party leadership in order to work out the factualism of the past year. Hitler cut a deal with Gregor Strasser, with the latter put in charge of the entire party's propaganda arm, in exchange for Esser being demoted out of his leadership spot. This also served to keep Strasser at the center of the party, where Hitler could keep an eye on him. Goebbels was initially given a Gauleteer spot, that being the term for a regional party boss within the Nazi party. Goebbels had tried to maintain some independence, but more so than even other Nazis, found himself enthralled with his leader after only a handful of meetings in his presence. Goebbels kept daily diaries from the early 20s all through to the end of his life, and the entries on Hitler are telling. They aren't so much the musings of a guy with a serious man crush, but rather someone caught up in the zealotry of religious devotion. For Goebbels, Hitler became a Christ figure to be worshipped and obeyed, and this relationship suited Hitler just fine. By early 1926, he was the undisputed leader of the Nazi party and the Volkish movement as a whole. He could be safely called the Fuhrer of German fascism at this point. There was just one catch to all these maneuverings and successes. His base had shrunk down to their lowest levels yet. 
The Nazi party itself was just 40,000 members across the whole of the nation. They weren't even a blip on the radar. His anti-Semitic and nationalist rhetoric had its sympathizers, but it wasn't a strong enough message to draw people away from the establishment political parties. This was the time that the Republic was healthiest. The chance of internal coups had largely passed, money was flowing in, and the center-right was solidly in control. The best the Nazis could do during these days was simply hang on and not dissolve. Hitler did the best he could within the bounds of his speaking ban, only addressing closed meetings with limited numbers or party-only gatherings. He left it to his minions to spread his word. The message was contorted to whom they tried to appeal to. If they were trying to appeal to the middle or upper classes, they'd stress the dangers of the Soviet Union and make promises of protecting private ownership. If it was among the lower classes, they would stick to blaming the Jews for every perceived social ill. The attempts at building broader appeal didn't work, though. Party support and attendances declined still further going into 1927, and even when parts of Germany allowed Hitler to conduct public speeches again, it seemed as though he had lost a step. Attendance from those curious as to what he would be like over three years on from the push was initially high, but the performances were just more of the same, and the crowds dwindled until they were lower than they had been before he had gone to prison. This was also reflected in the efforts to drum up financial support. A constant threat in these times was financial insolvency for the Nazi party as a whole, and Hitler spent a great deal of his time and effort begging businessmen and industrialists for a few scraps to keep going. Given how far from power the Nazis were, these efforts were mostly in vain, and the party stuttered along uncertainly. Things were not going great, and again the Nazi party fell prey to internal squabbling. But the big difference between then and, say, 1925 during the North-South split was that there was no question of removing or isolating Hitler. For what was left of the ultra-right, there were no other options. And either by design or the good fortune produced by his own stubbornness, Hitler had never been compromised with the taint of factionalism like everyone else had. In addition to his credibility, he had also established himself as a symbol of the movement. Way back at the start of Hitler's involvement in the Nazi party, Eckhart had mentored the burgeoning politician to create a persona for others to believe in and feed into. Eckhart had actually passed away soon after the push in December of 1923, after the booze and drugs caught up with him, but the planted seed took off in these years, before Hitler had been a simple demagogue. Now that the movement had fallen to him, he began to take the shape of a dark messiah. He demanded uncompromising personal loyalty to himself. In exchange, he gave his followers a clarity of purpose and a clear path forward. It was Hitler himself that became the message of the Nazi party. By 1926, the familiar extended right-arm salute and cry of Heil Hitler became a required ritual for every Nazi, and his image became the focal point of propaganda. It wasn't yet the mass cult it would eventually become, although many in the leadership had individually reached that point. Hess was one who was always desperate to be led, and had established himself as Hitler's Renfeld for years already. Goebbels put his devotion in religious terms. Even a realist like Gregor Strasser valued this clarity such a dominant leader provided. In a movement where so many men sought something or someone to serve, Hitler was their focal point. And so even at these low times in the party's fortunes, and even though most of the Nazi leadership hated each other, they held together. Which was probably the only good thing going for them, because politically, they were still the crapper. The next election was in May 1928, and it was yet another disaster. 
the Nazis wound up with an even smaller vote share than the ultra-right unity bloc back in December 1924. Hitler tried to cheer his leadership up by pointing out that no rival Volkisch group had risen to challenge them. They still had their niche, but it was disheartening all the same to only get 2.5% of the vote. Now, this was also the election where the center-right started to show distress. As discussed in earlier episodes, the political establishment was never able to create a national consensus regarding the Weimar Republic, so by this time people were starting to lose enthusiasm for the electoral mainstream, but there just wasn't an initiating event that would force voters to make a break en masse. For now, the Nazis took stock of their most recent failure. Reaching out to workers wasn't going so well. They clearly weren't fooled by the socialism and national socialism. So the Nazis started zeroing in on two other groups, German farmers and the middle class. Farmers are famously always vulnerable to right-wing messaging, as their profession, by its very nature, encourages conservative thinking and resistance to change that might threaten them. And it's during this period, too, that things were starting to get notably bad for farmers, mostly due to the effects of the global market. The enormous granaries outside of Europe were operating at full steam and forcing down prices which created a lot of ticked-off agriculturalists. Conditions were not quite so bad they started blocking the Nazis in vast numbers, but some did, and the door was left open for the others that the party was an option for them. The same went for the fearful middle class. The overriding concern of that group was always to preserve what prosperity and social privilege they had scraped together. The Republic never really made good on the losses they suffered in the years during and after World War I, and the trauma it created stuck with this class of small shopkeepers, teachers, clerks, lawyers, and what have you. Like the farmers, it didn't flock to the Nazis, but it appeared as an option in case the rickety political system gave out, which very soon it was about to. In addition, I talked earlier about the cultural divisions in Germany, and how the middle of the country were uneasy with the liberal artist culture coming out of Berlin, and the Marxist utopianism coming from the working classes. The Nazis entered into these culture wars with gusto, offering a jackbooted show of strength in a world moving too quickly for many Germans. Throughout 1928 and 1929, the Nazis made inroads with the two groups I just described, making their grievances and their fears, both economic and cultural, their own. If you're wondering why the Nazis made things like artistic censorship and book burning such a big part of their image, beyond their natural lust for conflict power trips, of course, it was simply them making good on their political promises to restore a imagined old way of living. People were scared of a world different from the one they had been raised to believe in, and the Nazi message struck a chord with them. It was also in 1929 that the reparations issue started rearing up all over again. Quick reminder time, the 1923 Ruhr crisis was started because Germany defaulted on its war debts to France. A plan was put in place to pay them off, with a grace period of five years to allow Germany to take an economic breather. The five years were now up, and Germany would have to start paying. Evidently, everybody forgot about this, because once discussions started going, protests started springing up all over again. A man named Alfred Hugenberg, who led a nationalist party known as the DNVP, set up a national committee to organize political resistance. Just a side note, because Hugenberg is going to be important for a few years when I get back to Germany. He was a former industrialist, who was also certainly an authoritarian and nationalist, but more in a traditional sense hailing back to the days of the German Empire. His beliefs overlapped fairly closely with the Nazis, 
although his had far less focus on the more dramatic elements of Nazism, like the racial showdowns or global conspiracies. He was never aligned with the Volkish movement, and was more the boring kind of authoritarian. Anyway, the committee also included men from the still-functioning paramilitary organizations, as well as industrialists like the steel magnate Fritz Thyssen. He also invited Hitler, an invitation which was readily accepted. Hitler was now rubbing shoulders with national figures for the first time since the push. Not bad, given he's been out of prison for only five years now. And the Nazi party was enjoying a higher profile around this time as well, having tripled in size and appearing to have the momentum to grow still more. Then on October 3rd, Gustav Stressman, the main supporter of the Republic with any capability, and the man who had engineered the economic recovery that had so left Hitler in the wilderness all this time, died. Then, the stock market in New York crashed later in the month. Its effects were not immediate, but anyone could see the disaster that would spring up from it. The Nazis had established a message of grievance, and only needed a breakthrough moment of crisis to truly enter the national scene. This had now happened, and the little over three years between October 1929 and January 1933 are going to be some of the most depressing and wild years in political history. For now, this is where I will leave Hitler and the Nazis. Up to this point, they had been too small and insignificant to really include with the general history of Germany. But just as Hitler's personal history merges with the history of the Nazi party, so too does the history of Germany now merge with the Nazis. Going to 1945, Germany, Hitler, and the Nazis will be inseparable. There would be challenges to this, and it still might have never happened had just one or two things gone the other way. But they didn't go the other way. And the prelude to Nazi Germany will start when we return to Europe in the Great Depression. And with that, the early history of Hitler and the Nazi party is wrapped. As I stressed before, if they had flamed out before the Depression hit, they probably would not have been remembered for much of anything. Maybe a little plaque in Munich for the push, but that's about it. It's going to be what happens after that gives everything I've covered in these episodes more significance, if only for how unlikely the whole story is. And since we're finished with Germany for now, it's time to move east into Central Europe. Next week, we're going to be starting a series on the clown car of nations that found themselves crammed between Germany and the Soviet Union. See you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.